Take advantage of their language. Take advantage of their culture. Take advantage of their way of life to express the gospel. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. My name is Rich Radowski. I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at LBT. Today we are talking with the Reverend Dr. Ebenezer Boafo, First Vice President of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ghana and Translation Consultant for Africa Area for Biblica. Dr. Boafo has a Master of Arts in Translation from the Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology in Kenya and a Ph.D. in Missiology from Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, USA. Our conversation covers a wide range of topics from local language engagement to local theologizing to the challenges of engaging African churches in Bible translation ministry and so much more. Hold on to your hats and enjoy the ride. We are here this morning with the Reverend Dr. Ebenezer Boafo, First Vice President of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ghana. Thank you for being with us this morning, and uh, we'd like to have our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us some about your background and how you came to be involved in Bible translation work? I would just want to start off by saying I used to be a teacher in a high school, and uh, I was teaching French and sometimes English, but my main subject was French. And I, I was really hoping to go forward as a teacher, and um, there were French exams to take for me to gain promotion and so on. Once um, I went to take this exam and I did so well, I was to be offered a scholarship to mm. go to France, okay. but all of a sudden things changed and they put me on the waiting list, and I was so frustrated. Uh-huh. I was so frustrated that this had taken place in my life, and I was praying and asking God, what's happening? Then I came to the conclusion that, no, I don't need to work for the government anymore, but I need to do ministry, mm-hmm. and that God must open a, a door for me to do ministry. So I decided to apply to a theological school in Nairobi, okay. not knowing what, what I would do, but I just wanted to go and serve the Lord. So I did apply, and the following year, I was called again to take the exam. Yeah. And I went to take it, but mm. I had already applied to the seminary. And this time, I was selected to go to France to go and do the course. Incidentally, it came when I had also received the admission to go to seminary. So um, there was a little bit of dilemma. How should I go about this? Should I sure. go to France first and come back and be a... And, and then we go back to seminary. Then I had an inner voice in, te- in me telling, to, telling me to make up my mind, you know. Yeah. So I said, okay, let's just go to ministry. So I left the country and went to Kenya to do my theological studies. And uh, I just rejected the scholarship given to me to go to France. Okay. I went to Pan-Africa Christian College where I went to do um, theological studies for one year, Pan-Africa Christian College. Yeah. And incidentally, that was the year that translation principles was introduced into that sem- that sem- seminary. I had oh, okay. never known that there was a course like that. SIL introduced translation studies as a program in Pan-Africa Christian College. So I oh. did the program for a year. And after that, I had to do graduate studies in Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. So I went to 
um, Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. And that same year was the year they introduced translation principles. So I was getting some connections. I was trying to connect things. I went to Pan-Africa, they introduced tra translation principles. I went to Next, they introduced translation principles. So I said, let me major in trans translation. And since I'm a linguist, I really had a passion for this translation ministry. So yeah. I did my MDiv. I started with MDiv and then changed to MA translation studies because that was the very year that the program was introduced in Nairobi. So I was the first person to complete that program in the whole of Africa. Wow. And then I finished in 1993. And then from there, I worked with Ghana Institute. I came back to Ghana, worked with Ghana Institute of Linguistics, Literacy and Bible Translation mm -hmm. for about three years. And they also trained me in language survey. There was a program in England, Hustlers Green. I yes. went to study language um, survey. I came back and I did survey work in Ghana, Togo, and in Benin, three countries. But I was single at that time. It's, it's not really a, a vocation for married people because you are, I'm always out in the field. That's so I true. came back to Ghana and worked with the Bible Society of Ghana for a year. Mm -hmm. From there, I worked for about two years, and then there was a conference in Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne, yeah. So I I wanted to attend a mission conference in Fort Wayne, mm -hmm. and when I got to Fort Wayne, that is when I met Dr. Bankowski. Yes. And introduced the PhD program where they wanted me to do translation studies. So that's how I got to um, Concordia, and I got funding for the program, but as, as yet, I didn't know what I would do after the seminary. Mm -hmm. So in my final year, final year, I got a letter from Biblica that they, ha they have been making a search for a, a translation consultant for the Africa area. And okay. my former school next had recommended me to to them. So they called me to Colorado Springs and from there they said they wanted to work with me. I had okay. not finished my, my, my thesis then, but I had to come to Ghana and write my thesis from Ghana as a worker of Biblica. So that's how I got to Biblica. At that time it was called International Bible uh, Society. So that's yes. how I got to the translation ministry and I've been working all this while since 2004. Very good. So you work for Biblica in in Ghana or in the Africa area as a consultant, uh, even to this time? Yes, I've been overseeing the African projects for the okay. past 16 years. Okay, very good. Um, so for Ghana particularly, how many languages are there in Ghana and how many Bible translations uh, yet to be done? Do you, do you know that information? Um, I know that there are 86 languages in Ghana. Okay. And, uh, we we are doing two languages um bible society is doing about five of them bible society that's the ubs yeah. and then gilbert where i used to work they are doing quite a lot but i don't know precisely how many they are doing yeah it's not possible for me to say how many sure. languages are left but i could say that for the new testament at least two-thirds of the languages in ghana have the new testament at this time Okay, very good. So, uh, as you know, I um, 
read your dissertation thesis to learn some about the work that you've been doing, and uh, I found some interesting things in there. So one of the things that I noticed in, in your writing is that you question Bible translation efforts and products that are aimed at children and the youth and say that's not the best strategy. Why is that? Yes, I, I really made that comment um, in the context of Bible translation being a literary activity. You understand, uh-huh. literary activity. In that sense, I, I realized that um, the youth are not very receptive to um, what we call written uh, local language scriptures. Okay. And there's a reason for that. That we, we, we start literacy or reading and writing in English language. English language is our first literary language. We learn it when we start going to school. Okay. So the, 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 the youth you know, have a higher proficiency in the initial stages. I'm talking of literary proficiency in English yes. more than in the local language, even okay. though they are proficient orally in the local language they are more proficient in the literary sense in english you yes. understand so mm-hmm. for the next say 15 years of their school life they work in english all the time sure. reading and writing in english all the time but that does not mean that english is their preferred language you okay. understand when yes. it comes to the to orality, the local language is preferred. So I would say, in the in the sense of a written Bible, at that stage of life, they would prefer the English language. But sure. when it comes to oral, you know, recorded scripture, they would really accept and embrace the oral um, uh, Bible, recorded Bible. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, in their in so, the vernacular language instead of English. Yes. Okay. In actual fact, they, they prefer the vernacular language okay. orally. Yes. Yeah. And when they gain proficiency in the uh, vernacular language, that is when they transition from English into the local languages. And that happens most of the time, say, after 20 years, when they, they start to recognize their identity you know identity is an issue they recognize that their identity that ah we we too we are can't we too we are errors we too we need to uh, uh, emphasize on um, on our identity so the issue okay. of identity comes on they become self-aware after 20 years and then they start going back reading most of them learn the local language on their own the vernacular because oh. of the skills they in English, they transfer it into the to the vernacular languages, and within a week or so, that they become proficient in the in the, the vernacular language. So yes, in the sense of written Bible, the younger people are not proficient uh, in the in the in the written vernacular languages at that time. But over over years, they they, transi- they transition into the vernacular languages. That's really fascinating. I never thought about that. Uh, what you're saying is that after uh, they are older and out of school, they start to more identify with their their tribal or ethnic identity and then and their language. Before that, they're really just involved in English. Yes, yes. that's exactly what happens to all of us. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. 
So multilingualism right now in the Bible translation world, there's a lot of conversation about multilingualism and the effect of multilingualism on looking at translation objectives and goals. So I, I think for our listeners' benefit, I'll say that for many years, Bible translation agencies and ministries really talked about all of the languages in the world and saying that there should be a translation in every language. But now people are saying, okay, but that idea came from people who only speak one language and they think of only one language, but many people in the world speak two or three languages. And so you have to account for that. So even uh, back when you were writing your thesis, you already also began to deal with that question. You studied a particular group, the Guan, and they don't have, or at least at that time, did not have their own Bible translation. And so you found they had a certain level of Bible reading in English, their third language, and then uh, tree, their second language, and uh, were proficient in both. But you say that um, the church would be stronger if they had a translation in their own language too. Why is that? Yes, I I made that um, statement because um, Reading the Bible is not only about getting to understand a message or to grasp a concept. Mm-hmm. No, reading the Bible goes beyond an attempt to comprehend what's in the scripture. Reading, reading the Bible is an interaction between the Bible and then somewhat, someone's roots or someone's past, someone's history, and okay. someone's memories. You understand? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, these this past then history and memories are all activities that have been recorded in our minds or subconsciousness. They, are, they have been mentally recorded in our local languages. And this is where I want us to emphasize. There has mm-hmm. been a record of history in everybody's consciousness. Okay. Now, this record has been done in one's vernacular language. That is the first point. Secondly, as I said, the Bible engages our history, our roots, our memories. Now, this engagement also requires reflection. We need to think about how, you know, when the conversation between the Bible and our past, we, we reflect upon it. And the question is, how do we think? We think using our local languages. We think in our local languages. We don't think in English. Even as I have learned English for years, I think in English. So I use my local uh, um, language. I use my vernacular language Mm -hmm. to engage scripture, to think as scripture engages my memory, as scripture engages my past and history. I use my local language to do that reflection, to get a better understanding and to get, you know, that identity as a new Christian that I have become, you understand? A better reflection, I used to be this. Now, Christ says that. And I'm using my local language, you know, to process all of these things. I don't use English to process it. So, in the same vein, I think, therefore, that the Goa person will be better off if they have that advantage of engaging scripture in their local languages, where they, you know, that's the language they use to process. So, why don't you give them that 
opportunity to use that language to process and for them to get a better understanding and deeper roots in the scripture. So that's why I said it's, it's useful for them to have their own scripture. They think in Gua, they reflect in, in Gua, and all their memories and their history, their past, are recorded in their consciousness in Gua. So yeah. we need to take advantage of that to help them exploit all of this to the benefit of Christianity in their communities. Okay, so you would say then that even if they're proficient in the second or third language, that there are still barriers then to understanding once you start to think about scripture use or scripture engagement as a deeper a deeper activity of taking that information and sort of putting it together with what's in your heart and your mind and who you are as a person and, and having the Bible in one's own language then removes those barriers as well. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And on top of that, yes, on top of that, emotional aspect. Now, supposing you can raise an account song, a tree yeah. song, an English song, and yeah. then you'll see how they'll pick up the language. But mm -hmm. when I raise a bad song, you see a whole big difference. In okay. their re re they become more relaxed, more mm -hmm. expressive. You, you know, that happens all the time. When they are singing in English, you could see that they, they, you know, they are singing of joy and peace. If they sing in tree, they sing of joy and peace. But when you start singing in their language, they become, you could see they are liberated. That's what the word I would use, liberated to sing. Okay. And the That's... joy and the peace in their minds, you cannot just imagine. Yeah. That's wonderful. So there's an emotional aspect of it, an emotional aspect to it. Sure. So many people think that the goal of a Bible translation project is to have a finished Bible or a print Bible or maybe even a recording of a Bible. But you say that it's more than that. What should the main goal of a Bible translation project be in addition to whatever products come from the, the project? Yes, it's very important for the Bible to be first translated. That is just the first step, you understand. Mm -hmm. Then there are other stages. There's a stage of engagement. That is where I would talk of the reflection and or the Bible engaging with the person's history, the person's past, the person's memories, and so on. Sure. So that aspect is is very very crucial. The engagement aspect. If you miss that aspect, you don't get much result as far as mission work is concerned. So the engagement is what will lead to redemption or liberation, as I would call it. The redemption leads or is a result of the engagement. And the redemption also causes them to know who they are. And that and there comes the identity aspect. I am a tree person, I am an account person, but yet I am Christian, just like anybody. Now, when they have that identity, then they can be confident to go out and tell people that this is what I am. Sure. This is what I have become. I have become Christian even though I did not change my identity. You too can become Christian without changing your identity. You know, in, in the Equipment history, for example, there's always this history of the battle missionaries having a tough time trying to get Christians. Yeah. And they went to the chief, the king, the Equipment king, and asked him, why is it that people are not heeding our message? And the, and the king says that it's because I've never seen a black man who is a Christian. Uh -huh. 
yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the the Basel people took this seriously and told their mission in Basel that this is what the king is saying. Can you go mm. for the black Jamaicans and bring them to the Kwapem area for them to see that they are Christians who are black? So they took a ship from Basel, Jamaica, and came, brought them to the coast of West Africa. The mm. one that King saw those people, then he said, oh, now we, we, we too can become Christian. They are just black like us. So that identity aspect comes when there has been a, a thorough engagement between the Bible and the person. And when the person knows that even me too, I can be a Christian. And that Christianity is not a foreign religion or from a white man or from a Jewish person. But where I can be, I can be convinced that I too, in my circumstances, I am accepted by Jesus Christ. So that's what I say. That's why I say when you finish translating the Bible, it's just the first step. There has to be that engagement, reflection. And that uh, the third stage is where the person is aware of his identity. That now I have a new identity. I'm the same. Christ has made me a new person in a new identity, and that I'm also accepted. Yeah, so that is how uh, I see Bible translation. So, any ministry that doesn't go through all of these things or doesn't partner with another ministry that does this has not completed his translation ministry. Yeah. So one of the things you wrote um, is it says the goal of every translation project should be in addition to express the word of God clearly in native languages. The goal should be to clearly demonstrate what theological contributions the languages they worked in offer to Christian theology, which is a, a really important statement. What can you tell us a little bit more about that or give us an example of what that could look like? Yes. What I would want to say about this is that before Christianity came, People have their own concepts about God. Some were right and some were not right. Mm-hmm. Now, what the, 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 the gospel is going to do is to purify their belief system, eliminating what is wrong and then retaining what is right. For example, in my language, we have several names of God. Uh-huh. More than the names that we find in the in the scriptures, many many names. Do you understand? Yeah. Now, when Christianity comes into my culture, these good names, these positive names, are introduced into Christianity, and they enrich Christianity. Okay. And if they are translated into other languages, then the Akan culture has had an impact on world Christianity. Do you understand? But yes. most of the time what happens is that the people who come and do the translations sometimes do not you know, send these discoveries back to their native lands, that God has other names, you know, yeah. God has other attributes. And as we do Bible translation, we see many of these things, some concepts that are not so explicit in the scripture, but which are inherent in other cultures which may be useful for other Christians in their context. Yes. So we haven't really explored that area very much. That's true. I think that's a, a wonderful gift that the uh, the churches that are, are language areas that are um, newly engaging scripture can offer to world Christianity. And we have to find a way to to um, share that information and, and uh, have it uh, understood and used more so than than is happening now. That's a a really powerful insight. 
Well, let me just read another quote because I thought this was also really important to you wrote, uh, until any serious studies are made on the theological language of the Guam people, you were talking about them particularly, but then you had a like an application for, for anywhere. So until any serious studies are made on the theological language of the Guam people, little may be known about the theological strengths and weaknesses of their culture, a situation which could lead to spiritual colonization and a weakened Christian mission. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. When we go to history, we, we know that the missionaries from Basel came in the, in the Equipim area. And within the Equipim area, those who speak tree uh, constitute, constitute about 30% of the population. And then 70% are Guan speakers. Now, the missionaries did everything to reach out to all the, 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 the Equipim area. It's not a big area. Mm-hmm. So they, they really reached every town and every city on the Aquapim Hills. But to date, we realize that Christianity is stronger among the tree speakers, among the Akan speakers, more than the Guan speakers. If you talk of African traditional religions, they are much stronger in the Guan area than in the tree area. So there must be something as I said, that is not being well translated into their theologies. That is making them a bit hesitant. You understand? Yes. Either it may, it may be that they have not been given full, they are not been given the opportunity to give full expression to their theological beliefs. We, we preach to them in tree, um, we think in tree, that is a kind of language. Mm-hmm. And they, are, they, they have not been given the, that opportunity to express themselves in their local language. But as I've said, we have seen them express themselves freely in, the, in songs. When it comes to singing, they have very powerful songs. And then when you, you could observe when you see them that they, are, they, are, they feel liberated when they are singing. Now, in the same way, I expect that they will, they will be liberated and then be able to, to emphasize and spread the gospel within their communities when we have a Bible translation in their community so that they are able to preach in their language, reflect in their language, and then spread the language through the, the languages. That is what I expect. Okay. Very good. You also mentioned that the Bible translation for over the past 100 or or 150 years has largely been driven by Western translation agencies. But now there's an important crossroads where uh, it's important to invest in the global Christian church to be more effective partners in Bible translation. Why do you think that is? Yeah, the Bible translation ministry in mission Per se, I would say that we have what we call foot soldiers, the ones on the ground who really do the work. What I would want to draw the attention of the missionaries is that anywhere they go, the local people there are the foot soldiers. They are the ones who do the real engagement, you know, the real engagement with the people because they are the ones who take the message to their homes, their families, and everything. And they are the ones who draw people 
to the missionaries. You know, the missionaries are not able to reach the people without the medium of the local people. What I mean by that is not that missionaries should, should come and go away. No, that's what I mean. Because when somebody is a translator or, or a missionary, he's a missionary for life. Mm -hmm. Missionary is not something you, you come and do and then go home after some years. No, you are in it. A Bible translator is a Bible translator forever. And ask Bible translators and go back home. Go back home and do what? They are Bible translators. They have to be everywhere they need to be. But okay. the, the missionaries need to facilitate, to be supportive in the mission. They must, they must let the, the local people drive the mission of translation while this gives them every backing and support they need. Because as I said, once a translator, you are a translator. And the more you are in the ministry, the more experience you have. So we expect that more experienced people would support the ministry in the other world, in the other, in the other localities, in the mission fields. So it's a collaboration and uh, or a form of partnership. That's what I mean. We need them around mm -hmm. because they have the expertise, because they are brothers, and the mission is for Christ. That is the central thing. And then we are not saying anybody should go home. No, once you are a missionary, you are. And therefore, we are not advocating for moratorium or anything. No, sure. you are always invited. And it can happen on our side too. We too we are able to go and do mission work in other countries. It's not a one-way traffic. We are also able to do mission in other countries, in Europe, in the USA. You know, it's an exchange because sure. we are all workers of Christ, empowered by Christ, and therefore working together. So, so the, the missionaries are, will always be needed and the European or the American Christian would also always need missionaries. We work yes. together. We must be supportive. And we must know that those we go to in their respective countries are the foot soldiers. That is yes. what we need, just need to keep in mind. Sure. And uh, you've also said that it is important to have Bible ministries working closer with churches and theological institutions to sensitize them about the importance of Bible translation in Christian mission. Have you experienced that with your own church, the ELCG? How is the role of, of Bible translation and language work a part of, of your church? In my church, we have not been able to sensitize um, our people much on okay. uh, especially the work of uh, Lutheran Bible translators. Mm. Some have been exposed, especially in the northern part where they see it. But within, within the southern part, we have not been able to expose them to Bible translation because I would say that we have not even yet grounded ourselves in the mission. And we will talk about that later. There's a reason why we are not yet grounded in the mission, let alone even going to um, Bible translation. But okay. I, I had an experience, it's a, it's a general experience. When I was in the seminary, I was in the library one day and somebody, he was an MDiv student and he comes and he tells me, I heard you are doing Bible translation. And I said, yes. Then he asked me, who gave you that authority to do um, Bible translation? Okay. How can you do Bible translation I mean, how can you do Bible translation? He's, he's saying it is the church that does it. Yes, I said, I know it's the church. Mm -hmm. 
But what does the church do to support Bible translation? There's a question. Yeah. You see, people over there in the, in the seminary have very little understanding of the work we do. And it cuts across many, many denominations. They, they don't incorporate Bible translation in their curriculum. For example, you could go to MA or MDiv in any seminary, you would never be taught about Bible translation. You see, that is very true. It, yeah, is, it is foreign to our, uh, our seminaries, and not only foreign, but there are some people who oppose it, even up to today. The way mm -hmm. the guy asked me, it's like I am doing something that is illegal. You understand? So they see Bible translation as something fixed. First of all, that guy thought that you know, once you are, I speak English and the people speak English in my language, that's it. In, in my country, so the people speak English in my country, that's it. There's no need for any Bible translation. That is its mentality. It has been yeah. translated. English is the official language in Ghana. Ghanaians must use English and that is it. That is what he meant. So there's, there has to be sensitization in our seminaries yes. because our translators are, are going to come from the seminaries and from nowhere. That's where we're going to get them from. But unfortunately, they have not been done because our seminaries are not interested. That's what I realized. Mm -hmm. They are always suspicious, suspicious of Bible translators. And it is very, it's, it's a very deep suspicion, I can tell you. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think that is, or how did, how did that originate? Any ideas? It's, it's because they think we are re-theologizing. We are doing okay. theology. They think theology is fixed, you understand? Okay. And the yeah. moment you, you do translation, you are thinking of new concepts, and there are certain things you cannot translate them directly into other languages. You would need to rephrase them. You need to think yes. about them again and put them in new words. And by doing this, you are re-theologizing. And this is what we fear, that as we do that, we will corrupt the true message of God. So that is their major fear, especially when we try to put in concepts, local concepts, that they don't even understand. You understand? Yeah. That is, mm -hmm. becomes a bit scary for them, that we have, a concept, we have concepts that they don't understand. How yes. sure are, are, are they that we are on the right path? You know, so that, that, that is the suspicion, the theology and the translation going on. They think we are somebody who say traitors. We could be traitors to the, to the um, message. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that the Lutheran Church in the United States or in Europe or in the West can learn from Lutheran churches in Africa? Mm, that's a very big question. What can they learn? The, what they can learn, if they are really prepared, what they can learn is the fact that when a church is planted, it does not alter the word of God, but in their expression of Christianity, there is a variation. Mm -hmm. We cannot expect a Christian expression in U.S., Europe, or Asia to be the same as it is in Africa. For example, when I was in uh, the seminary, people were saying dancing is a mundane. Do you understand? To dance is a mundane act. Yes. It, 
because they don't understand what dancing is in Africa. Dancing is not just a means of entertainment. It is language, you understand. Dancing is language in Africa. And you can best see it when, when, when you go to our communities and there are festivals and you see different kinds of dancing. And, they, and as they dance, they talk. And we also have drums. The drums also talk. Yeah. You know. So language in Africa is not just um, written, 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 written. So if you come to us and then you are always emphasizing on the written, people see the church as a school. You know, mm-hmm. it, it is not part of their culture. That's good. That's very insightful. The people are expressing, I express so many things in different ways. Mm-hmm. Language, dressing, dancing, music is very crucial. So all of these things, they have to learn and know that these are language. And when we talk of language, it, it does not only include spoken or written language. It, yeah. includes, it engulfs so many things. And if they are aware of this, and incorporate it in their missionary strategy, they will have more success than they have had. But if they want to import what is in their country into just into our country, it becomes um, an artificial, artificial form of worship. And people are waiting to be liberated. You know, yeah. people are in the church, people are waiting to be liberated. And to be liberated is that tip. Uh, take advantage of their language. Take advantage of their culture. Take yeah. advantage of their way of life to express the gospel. That is what they must learn. That's great. Thank you so much for that insight. Very good. So tell us, how have the scriptures been meaningful in your life? You've talked about your journey and your know, vocational goals and, and how those things have switched. How have the scriptures been meaningful to you on that journey? It has been very, very strong. You know, I did um, French and I did uh, liberal arts, you know, the arts and English. And I've read a lot of philosophies from various, various countries, France and English philosophers and so on. And um, I've gone deep into all of these philosophies and I've known what they mean and what they want. And I have, I have the occasion to be able to compare what they are thinking and what the Bible is thinking. And you could see the superiority of the Bible. Yeah. You understand? You could see clearly how superior. Unless you, you read the Bible, you think that those are the best intellectuals in history. Mm. <laughs> but when you start reading the, 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 the New Testament and all the Psalms and all of these things, then you realize that those people, they don't know anything. It causes you to attach yourself more and more to the word of God and to have confidence. They try to turn things around, to change things, to misrepresent the Bible. But if you see and read the Bible, you realize that what they are saying is not true and that they are making an effort to tarnish the the word of God, the image of the word of God. So you see, the, the Bible, what's in the Bible is superior, superior to human philosophy. There are so many loopholes in, in human philosophy to the extent that it's nothing to write about. It's, it's nothing to write about. When you compare it to the Bible, which just says the message as it is. Yeah. And so I have been 
the Bible is something I, I always read several times a day, and every day I see new things. And every day I read, I see new things as if I had never read before. That is what makes it fun for me because that's the motivation for me to read. And that's why I always want to be in the Bible translation ministry to help people to read. And one yeah. of the ways of helping people to read is to simplify the language, make it clear for the people, remove all those difficult uh, concepts and reduce it to basic level for anybody to understand. Then they will understand what God is saying. And then they will realize that what they are being told by the media and the other philosophers are just groundless you know, talk, groundless and baseless talk. Mm-hmm. What scripture or words of encouragement would you like to leave our listeners with today? Um, I would just like to read a portion of the scripture in uh, that's Revelation chapter 5. And then let me read from verse 6 to 10. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on this earth. You know, in this world where there's much tribalism, there's much social distinctions, racism, and etc., the Bible makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear here, undisputable, that whatever tribe you come from, whatever language you speak, whoever you are, whatever country you are from, all of us are from one kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven. We are God's children. We have been made priests. And all of us have been given the power to serve God. And this should unite us together as Christians. Respect one another. Support one another, pray for one another, and help one another in our mission. For together, we will succeed in this mission. This is what I have to to say this morning. Amen. Thank you so much for sharing that and uh, for your time this morning. We've been talking with the Reverend Dr. Ebenezer Boafo, First Vice President of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ghana. Thank you for your time this morning, sir. Thank you, too. Have a nice day. Thank you to the Reverend Dr. Ebenezer Boafo for being our guest on the podcast today and sharing your insight from your years of education and field experience. There's a lot to think about, pray about, and act on in what we heard from Dr. Boafo today. We pray for God's richest blessings on his word as it is proclaimed in the congregations of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Ghana, for language communities in Ghana and all over West Africa just now engaging with God's word for the first time, and for those who are still waiting. 
Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. Look for past episodes of the podcast and leave feedback at lbt.org slash podcast or on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to www.lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. The Essentially Translatable podcast is edited and produced by Andrew Olson and distributed by Katie Hogan. The executive producer is Amy Gertz. Technical support for this episode was provided by David Federwitz. Podcast artwork designed by Caleb Rodewald. Music written and performed by Rob Bite. I'm Rich Rodowski. So long for now.